All right, so uh, Tamara Wilson, really important question for you today. The question before us is, what is a behavior that young Tamara Wilson engaged in that maybe would have represented a challenge in grown Tamara's classroom? Um, I thought a lot about this question and um, I was a model student, so I had to really think really rack your brain. What, um, and it would it would probably be being too quiet. Okay. Um, I tend to I tend to sit and just absorb yeah. and not want to participate and engage. And as as a teacher, that that would be something that I would try to uh, work on with a student and try to pull yeah. a little bit more interaction and participation out of. Yeah. So so grown Ms. Wilson would be like, Tamara, I know you have a lot to say. There's a lot of great ideas. We just need you to just, just say a little bit of what's on your mind and that kind of thing. chose the title Habitually Disruptive because it most clearly articulates what I believe about working toward a better world. We live under a lot of isms, like that Erica Badu album, What's Your Ism? And systemic oppression and equality. These systems and institutions were built intentionally and uh, generally over a long period of time. I was in a frustrated state as a veteran teacher, realizing that my actions alone would not bring about the abolition of this system of schooling and everything connected to it, certainly not in my lifetime. Um, when I came across the work of Dr. Bettina L. Love, whose We Want to Do More Than Just Survive, uh, opened a world of abolitionist practice. I've learned from Dr. Love and so many other brilliant scholars, mostly black and brown women's work, that abolition begins with disruption and interruption of oppressive systems. So the way I kind of see it, disruption is a habit. Disruption feels uncomfortable, like when you're in that staff meeting and someone makes a comment that reinforces oppressive ideas and practices and you want to speak and you don't, but it keeps happening. And finally you speak and everyone's quiet and weird and then you're like, period, that felt good. At first, it took a lot for me to speak disruptively. I was protecting a lot. I felt like I needed to protect my career. I didn't want to be viewed as a troublemaker. I had a lot of internalized uh, white supremacy when it came to what education looked like and what our students should be able to do. And then once I started speaking a little bit more, uh, once I started actually believing that what I observed was actually happening and needed to be named, I would be emotionally spent afterwards. It's like you you bring these points, um, you raise these points and bring them to bear, and it's just exhausting because 
frequently what you have is a lot of people around you who simply don't know what you're talking about and need to be educated. And, you know, when I'm asked if I've ever met opposition to the positions that I express, I say generally no, um, but mostly it's like I'm speaking a different language that they are not familiar with at all. Um, so it isn't so much the opposition and it isn't so much the indifference. It's just the ignorance of the things that I um, that I would hitch my wagon to that I'd be focused on in my work. I'll tell you right now, um, maybe it comes with being in my mid-40s now, um, it feels a lot more natural to disrupt than it once did. Um, although I will tell you my heart still races, my voice still shakes. But I have to believe that I am doing the right thing um, as long as I'm coming from, as my friend Marilyn Suniga says, uh, a place of love. And also check out the Two Dope Teachers podcast episode with Marilyn uh, where she talks about her path and this wonderfully spiritual and humanizing pedagogy um, that is just infectious. Like it's just contagious. You can't help but want more. So this podcast is dedicated to the resistors, the disruptors, to those who by their words, actions, or mere presence are disrupting oppression and oblivion. May we all learn from their stories. My first interview is with Aspen High School teacher Tamara Wilson. A Colorado native and graduate of the University of Northern Colorado, Tamara has worked at Aspen High School in Aspen, Colorado for 17 years. Over the course of her time at Aspen High School, in addition to teaching, she has served as International Baccalaureate Coordinator, Student Government Advisor, Coach, and on a variety of other leadership teams. Um, John Lewis is her hero, and her favorite quote from John Lewis is, Sometimes you have to get in the way. You have to make some noise by speaking up and speaking out against injustice and inaction. So you can see why Tamara is the perfect um, guest for this show. I first learned about Tamara in the fall of 2020 uh, when my mom, hi mom, when my mom sent me um, an article about her from the Aspen Times that um, was simply titled, Black Educator Works to Bring More Multicultural Learning Perspective to Aspen Schools. And this was a piece that was really, really amazing. Um, you're going to learn a lot about Tamara, but in essence, what you will really hear is how the Black Lives Matter movement and how working for the dignity of black people, but also representation of black people in history, in culture, in our schools, and in the modern day has really guided her work, even in a place like Aspen, where you would not assume that multicultural education is um, the rule. Um, and, I, and I will say, I, this is not a city bias. Um, many of us who live in these urban uh, bubbles, I guess you could call them, don't always have a deep understanding of the important conversations that are happening in other parts of our state. This podcast is Colorado-based, but we are always hoping to find um, to find disruptors all over the country. Um, but Colorado is a really interesting place in terms of education and in terms of the things that we're fighting towards and working for. And... Um, and it's important that we kind of recognize that. So without any further ado, I give you uh, Tamara Wilson, Aspen High School social studies teacher.
Hey, what's up, people? Gerardo here, and I am with high school teacher Tamara Wilson in the city of Aspen, Colorado. So th this is, um, you know, off mic, I was explaining to you um, how I kind of learned about your story and learned about the work that you're doing um, at your school in Aspen. My mother texted me an article about you and the work that you've been doing in the wake of the uprisings uh, that happened in 2020. And, uh, and she's like, you, you have to, you have to find this person, get her on your podcast and that kind of thing. And so um, here you are, Tamara, how are you today? I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me today. Awesome. And, you know, I, you know, I can't, I can't stress enough. We're all teaching right now. It's, uh, you know, you, you taught all day, I'm assuming. And so now you're here doing this conversation. So I really appreciate you, appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Um, if you are interested in following uh, what we are doing here on Two Dope Teachers and a Mic, you can follow us at Two Dope Teachers on Twitter and on Instagram. You can like us on facebook.com slash Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. You can also send us an email with show ideas, Two Dope Teachers at gmail.com. Kevin is out uh, doing some work uh, for the union. He's good that way. Um, and so I am here talking to Tamara Wilson. So, um, so first I just kind of, you know, we really emphasize trying to amplify and elevate the stories of teachers of color is how, how they came in to the work and what it is in your background that kind of puts you on this path. So how did you come into teaching? You've been, you've been teaching for a good minute. Um, and that's very unusual in general. And then for teachers of color, even more so. So how did you come into teaching? What is it in your background that kind of put you on this path? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I have been teaching for 17 years. Yeah. Now, um, always at the high school level. And I actually had a counselor in elementary school who told me, I think you're going to be a teacher. And that was the first time it kind of entered oh. into my mind and yeah. it stuck with me yeah. uh, throughout. Um, when I think about how I became a social studies teacher, that is definitely more random. When I went to college, I just checked boxes of what I was interested <laughs> in yeah. and uh, social studies seemed to be the winner. Yeah. So that's, that's what I pursued. Yeah. I think just thinking about my family background, my mom was a nurse for a long time. And my dad was a police officer. So I think there was always just kind of this emphasis on, on serving and helping others. That's what I was going to ask. I mean, you know, cause I, I relate a little bit. My dad came to the U S from Mexico in 1974 and, you know, sixth grade education, you know, he didn't have any kind of degree, but he coached youth soccer forever. And my mom is a retired teacher. And so, you know, the, when you see people around you working, in the community that kind of motivates what were there specific things that you sort of learned from your parents examples that um kind of you know sort of power you today or that you kind of revert back to i think definitely on my dad's experience um in helping with the community yeah. we lived in the vale valley which is yeah. very similar to yeah living in Aspen, demographically speaking, yeah. and my father was the only African-American police officer within, wow. I don't know, 50 miles of where wow. we were. <laughs> and so just seeing his ability to do his job and and overcome not just the, the stressors of being a police officer, but seeing how he handled race alongside mm -hmm. that, 
um, and continued to work hard for people in spite of them maybe not wanting him to be the one working hard on on their behalf. I think I found very inspirational and it helps me tackle the challenges that that I face or that I have faced in my career, especially in terms of race. Yeah, that's that's just really fascinating because I think that, um, you know, this reminds me of a conversation that uh, we had on the podcast with uh, LaShonda Garrison. LaShonda is a um, she's the state teacher of the year from the Department of Defense. And um, and I had it in my mind to ask her, so what's that like teaching abroad? And in our conversation, I discovered she's always taught, she's always worked abroad. She's like, she's a military kid. She's always lived abroad. She's always worked abroad. And so asking her, that was kind of like asking what's the air like, you know? Um, so, but th- that is kind of a, a question of interest I have for you. Like I'm, so I'm, I'm born and raised in Colorado. I think like you, right. And, um, but I'm from Denver. And so it's a little bit different. What, what has been that experience? Cause a lot of questions come up for me when I think of, okay, we have a, we have a teacher of color. We have a black teacher from Vail that teaches in Aspen. What's that been like? Do you know what that's like? <laughs> like, is, is there any, like, what has that experience been for you? How have you experienced your work and your identity in those spaces? It has definitely been a journey. I think growing up, it was such a, a challenge um, being not only a, a a, a racial minority, but just in, in numbers in, in our town. Yeah. Uh, my family was the only black family and we're actually a mixed family right? because I'm, I'm biracial. Yeah. We were the only, only black family in our entire high school. Um, wow. There were five black kids that had graduated from our school and four of them are my family members. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was, <laughs> it was very, very isolating. And I think initially I resented having to grow up in that environment and didn't think that I had anything to take away from it. And when I found myself back in Aspen in a very similar situation, I was able to kind of flip what my role was going to be in the community. I think as a child, I resented being one of the only black um, females in town. And as a teacher, I've kind of embraced that as an opportunity to share with others my perspective on life. And so I think I've been able to turn something that I thought was a negative um, into a positive. And it definitely poses different challenges um, being a woman of color in Aspen. But I think I just had to shift my mindset and see it as an opportunity as opposed to something that was negative that was going to hurt me long-term down the road. So other questions come up kind of as you speak that I think are pretty interesting. So um, were, so have you always lived in that area? Did you leave for a time? Uh, Cause you mentioned coming back to Aspen. Um, so was that for college or that kind of thing? Um, yeah, I grew up in small mountain towns and then I left and attended college in Greeley at the university of okay. Northern Colorado, yeah. um, which was certainly more diverse. Yeah. Um, not as diverse as, um, if I was to go to a larger university sure, for sure. sure. Um, and then after college, I just 
have the mountains calling again. Yeah. So was that like a was that like, a, was that like a big step for you, like leaving um, the Vale Valley and going like as far away as Greeley? Was that kind of a big step? Because I know my my parents, like my Mexican dad especially, like freaked out about me going twenty five miles away to Boulder, <laughs> you know, for college. Uh, was that kind of a big step? I imagine Greeley um, hits a little bit different than Vale does. Um, it was, I'm, I've always been a really independent person. So okay. I think I, I went into it thinking I was going to forge my own path anyway. Yeah. Um, but definitely it just size and demographically, it was, there were just things I had to, had to learn that I yeah. didn't ever think about, um, growing up in the Vale Valley, something as simple as locking your door. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. just there was a huge learning curve in terms of yep. you know just kind of life skills yeah uh, because it is and people say this all the time living in places like Vale and Aspen there is a bubble um, it's not necessarily a good or bad thing but there's definitely it's, a learning that's just curve what it is yeah. yeah well and the notion it's interesting because I feel like oftentimes when people talk about folks in smaller mountain communities living in a bubble it's it's a little bit of shade right because it's sort of like because it kind of suggests provincialism, resistance to change and that kind of thing. And, you know, when I talk about the classes that I teach in Denver public schools, people are blown away, like, because Denver is kind of a bubble also, like we're this weird little space where there's been like kind of a radicalization of the school district. And it's just not that way in a lot of other places. And so I I always find that kind of language of, you know, being in a bubble, it's like, you know, I, I kind of see how, how our bubble is and um, it's kind of considered the norm. So the mountains called you after college. Um, what was it? Was it a specific opportunity? Was it just like, frankly, too much Greeley and not enough veil? Like, <laughs> what was it? Um, you know, it was where I could get a job. Yeah. Um, I just applied everywhere I could out of college and and had you gotten a teaching, yeah. you had gotten your teaching credential and done your educational work at Greeley's, which is a yes. really reputable, um, you know, teacher training program. Uh, we've had a lot of folks come out of UNC who are super strong. Um, so, so it was one of those things where it's like, okay, did the thing, um, you know, applying for work and it, something popped up in Aspen? Uh, yes. And I just applied for it, not really thinking I was going to get the job. Uh, and, and I did, it was, it was an amazing feeling. So as a young teacher, I think it was, it was I was just ex- excited to go anywhere and yeah. it just worked out that it happened to be in the mountains yeah. as well. So yeah. that was even better. No, that's great. That's great. Um, yeah, that, that's amazing. I've often thought about what it'd be like to live and work in a community like that. That's in an area like that. Um, uh, I ran the, the, the Aspen Marathon a couple of years ago. And so that was like super fun. Um, but, you know, to be in that in that environment, like, you know, for your work and for your life is really interesting. Um, so one of the really powerful things that you said, you know, a lot of the narrative around what teachers of color experience, particularly black and brown teachers, is that there there is isolation, which you referred to. And there is a sense of, and we're going to talk a little bit about your feelings around representation. That's something that came up in the, in the article that my mom sent me. Um, And, um, you know, I think it's really important, but this idea that you're kind of leaning into your identity is like, yeah, I'm the only one. So it's really important that I, that I do this work. Um, Tell me a little bit about the community that you serve. So, you know, you've kind of hinted that, 
um, you have not been around a large like black community growing up in in Vail and how there may still be some of that. What what is the community that you serve? Who are they and um and why do they need you? <laughs> um, you know, first of all, I will, I do want to say that the Aspen community is a fantastic one. I think that they are very supportive of education. They are very supportive of educators. Oh. Um, they students and parents, there's just a, a desire to learn wow. um, really from, from anyone that is willing to like share. Cool. Um, so I think I, I lucked out joining a community that was so thirsty yeah. for knowledge. Um, one of the things that they needed knowledge about was um, experiences of others because it is a primarily um, upper middle class, not even upper middle class, um, <laughs> um, it is a, a, a wealthy community. Okay. <laughs> I, was wondering, I wasn't sure which way you were going to go with that. <laughs> like, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting affluent. to try. It's, it, it's an affluent Yeah, it's an affluent community. community for the most part, I think. And I had to explain this when I was growing up to people too. Growing up in Vail, you have two populations. Mm-hmm. You have the affluent population and you have the people that work <laughs> in the community. Right. Yeah. And those are two very different things. And yeah. there are two very different needs based on that. So definitely if I can dispel the, the idea that everyone that I teach is a part of the affluent community, yeah. that's definitely not right. True. Because both, you know, you talk about these two communities and, and I think that, I think that exists on, on uh, both micro and macro levels all across our system. Right. Um, you know, the, the thing that these communities have in common is that their kids go to school. And so, um, and so that's kind of where it sort of lives. So, so do you, do you, um, do you teach both communities? Has that been your experience? I absolutely teach both communities and it, I think at times I have to remind people that we have both communities because it's easy to see the, the access to resources that we have. Um, And that's something that I do think adds to my experience as well is that I've, we just don't want for anything at our school. Um, Every year tax time comes around and they're like, how much did you spend, you know, as a teacher in your classroom? And the answer is nothing because that's because I am, I'm fortunate enough to be an educator in a place where that where they can afford whatever is necessary. But at the same time, because of that, it's really easy to ignore the students who can't right. afford everything. Yeah. And they just kind of put a blanket over it. It's fine. Everybody's everybody's got this. Yeah. And that's not really the case. There are I mean, still inequities I, that kind of persist in these situations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And things that we've in our community, we take for granted something like access to technology or access to the internet. We oh, make yeah. the assumption that everybody has it, that that's, you know, lack of access is somebody else's problem. That's another community's problem, right. not our community's problem. We're good. We're yeah, good. Exactly. <laughs> and it is it is very much an issue. And it's it's a daily issue yeah. that if you pay attention, you you try to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important that they have you. You know, it's... Um, it's uh it's it's so interesting because i think that there are a lot of communities like that and you know there are places where the opposite is true like i feel like my district uh denver public schools 
um, likes to roll out our diversity numbers and look how diverse we are. Look at all the different groups that send their kids to school. But the the reality is that we're, you know, I think one of the 10 most segregated uh, school districts in the country. And, you know, so you have places you go in this diverse school district, they're all white, they're all black, they're all brown, and very few of the schools actually, rep- you know, represent on a, on a micro scale, the, the larger trends in the, in the school. So I'm going to do something that might make you slightly uncomfortable because teachers don't always like to do this, especially the great ones don't like to do this. Um, so I asked you a little bit about the community that you served and you sort of, you talked about ways in which the community supports the school and it's, and you know, they're very eager to learn, but why do they love you? <laughs> so what is it that you know and, and I think this is really good practice for for teachers like I think I think th- that we are so tough on ourselves like people talk about the media and the public being really tough on teachers that's nothing compared to like the inner monologue that we always have going when we're you know trying to do our work and we always you know and I imagine that you and I are in kind of a similar place I'm a veteran teacher I've been doing this for long enough that I see every little thing I did wrong on a daily basis right um, but one of the things we don't always do is kind of like talk about, nah, this is why I'm great in this position. So why is your school better for having Tamara Wilson at the school? Oh, gosh. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that, that definitely is, is a tough one, but a question that I've been asking of myself a lot since just the events of this summer. Sure. Uh, to be honest, I've been reflecting on my experience in my particular school district in my particular building. And so I think that one of the strengths that I have is that I really truly believe that every student is capable of excellence. Period. And I, Period. I really, I, yeah, I hold every student um, to the highest standard and believe that every student can accomplish anything I'm throwing down. And yeah. I think that when students start to believe that and families start to believe that they there's there's nothing better than that there's almost no better lesson than that um i love i love me some history but at the same time i think the most important lesson that students take away from me is their their belief in themselves and their ability yeah and i like to think that that's maybe what they well that's that's us or love about me right like that's not a small thing i think that I think there's a lot of rhetoric out there where every single teacher will say, I believe all kids can learn and all kids can succeed and all kids have intelligence and gifts, but does it show through in your practice? And I think there are a lot of educational institutions, buildings, spaces that say those words, but don't actually know what they mean, like what it means to actually look at every single student, even ones engaged in problematic behavior and say, nah, this kid this young person, this young scholar is capable of excellence. Like that, that is a huge thing. So, so what you bring is your ability to gas them up and be like, you got this, you know, and you'll, you got this because I'm not going to let you not get it. <laughs> right. Um, absolutely. And I'm not going to let them not try 
for yeah. it. I think it's one of the things that I did. Um, I was the international baccalaureate coordinator for five years oh, okay. yeah. at Aspen High School. And yeah. the initiative that I started at my school was IB for all. Yeah. And this idea that every student, I don't care what IB class it is, everybody's going to do one yeah. because everybody is capable sure. of you know, thinking and working and writing. And, um, and so one of the things that I am most proud of is we moved that program from being about 30 students to almost the entire senior class by the time they graduated um, out of 140, I think only 11 students had not taken at least one IB class. Right. Um, I had incredible numbers of kids taking on the full diploma that didn't think that they could Wow. do it. Wow. Um, and not only did they do it, they were successful and earned yeah. their diploma and things like that. I think I've contributed just this honest belief that, that kids yeah. are capable. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think too, like, so not, not to understate it because what you did directing that IB program actually does, even if it felt small, actually does sort of disrupt the kind of the gatekeeper mentality that kind of pervades a lot of international baccalaureate programs that pervades advanced placement programs. I teach AP and, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those situations where it's almost like you have to earn the right to get the good stuff, you know, traditionally. And the, uh, the move to make IB more equitable um, is powerful. We have, we've had a major issue with that at one of our AB schools um, where that resulted in some real conflict between interest groups in the school um, but it's absolutely the right thing to do. And it, it, may, it reminds me of, um, of a study that was done recently around gifted and talented identification and how um, one school district said, you know, the most equitable way to do this is just to test everybody, not just test the students who teachers tell us to test, um, but to actually just test everybody. And um, there was one school where the, the, the highly gifted and talented, and that, that's obviously um, a, a fraught you know, system, but the highly gifted and talented population tripled. And it was a lot of students who were getting suspended. It was a lot of students who had mental health issues. It was a lot of students who had behavioral issues and bad grades and that kind of thing. And it forced a real change in the conversation of what gifted and talented education means. And I imagine it had the same effect um, in your community when you're sort of shifting IB is not being a selective elitist process, but a process that's available to everybody. Um, absolutely. I think, you know, there, we had the same growing pains. Uh, and I think that it's, it's an ongoing fight. I, yeah. It's not something that, you know, was settled with that five years and that growth. It's yeah. a constant battle for kids to be able to really embrace education and what they can be. And I think self-fulfilling prophecy is, is so important. Kids have to really mm -hmm. believe that they're capable yeah. in order for them to be capable. Yeah. So inspiring that belief and then giving students the space to work with that yeah. belief yeah. is, is something I really believe in. And yeah. it's a constant, it's a constant battle. <laughs> no, it is. It is because you, you have to, you have to have the conversation on both ends because you're going to have young people um, who just don't believe that there's anything important or special about them. And then you're going to have institutional practices that, that willingly erase those students from view. And so, you know, doing both things is really tough. Um, 
that that's it that that's dope i mean i i think that like you know the importance of being seen and having an opportunity for kids particularly kids of color but all kids really um is incredibly powerful so um we're gonna go to a quick break uh we're talking here uh with aspen high school teacher tamara wilson uh when we come back we're gonna talk a little bit about the last year in terms of what populations of color, communities of color, black students, black educators have experienced, um, as well as the elephant in the room, which is COVID. Uh, so stay with us. We will be right back. Hello, listener. If you've made it this far into the episode, perhaps you are enjoying this remix conversation about power, culture, and education. And if that's the case, please consider joining others like you, educators, community leaders, activists, scholars, artists, and youth by supporting the Two Dope Teachers and a Mic podcast and productions on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you can get on-air shout-outs, sneak previews, and early released episodes insider information on the happenings in two dope nations and many other small benefits the greatest benefit though is you enable us to keep bringing the fire because of people like you we have expanded to two podcasts with the exit interview taking flight and forcing hard conversations about attacks on black educators and we've added new features including episode transcripts and a revamped website all because of listeners like you. But that's just the beginning. Your support will open up new possibilities for us and for the communities we represent and advocate for. And at the $15 per month level, you receive a sticker. Yes, folks, a sticker. To support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash two dope teachers. That's patreon.com slash two dope teachers. What's up, everybody? We are back. Gerardo Munoz, one dope teacher. Uh, Kevin is away um, on some important union business. Um, but I am fortunate enough to be sitting here with uh, Tamara Wilson, high school social studies teacher in the city of Aspen. And uh, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about pushing for equity in, um, in traditionally exclusive educational environments and some really powerful things that were spoken um, there. So equity, uh, Tamara has like, there, there's big picture equity, like sort of the long view saying, all right, we know that there is systemic inequality. We know that this stuff is baked into the system and it's going to take a really long time to actually break these things to, to achieve abolition and to, to achieve liberation is a really long process. And for the most part, it's a little bit of a grind, right? But then there are moments where our issues of inequity just jump up into our faces and we have to respond. And I don't think it's controversial to say that the last 13 months have almost been like equity ground zero, where all of the things uh, that we've been dealing with in the system have kind of been laid bare. 
Um, so what I want to kind of talk a little bit about that is just a turbulent year for schools, for educators, for students. Um, and within that, um, the growing consciousness of Black experiences in school with law enforcement. So as these questions have come up, um, how do you find yourself engaging with their students in their, in their families? And, you know, the, you know, obviously, I think there are certain assumptions that listeners will make about the community you teach in. Um, have you felt uneasy teaching what you do the way you do in these times? I would say that I have not. Um, that doesn't surprise me for some reason. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. This has been who you are, right? You're you're yeah, you're in here. You're out here doing the work. You're the only one, and you're cool with that. You know. Yeah, I have my entire career. I have just done what I thought was right. Mm. Um, no matter what what subject we happen to be teaching. Mm. Um, when I started teaching, we, we had a tracking system for students and, you know, I thought to get, to get rid of that. So I think that it's just a part of my teaching style to do what is right and what I think is right. And so having those hard conversations, uh, I don't shy away from them. I think the, the challenge that I'm having is sometimes the reaction of families who don't really want to acknowledge what's going on or mm. are not are not ready to acknowledge what's going on or to acknowledge what what could exist within in their own families and how does that children. show up how does that show up when you know when they don't want to acknowledge or address it like how does that show up um right now it's it's showing up in a lot of critique of curriculum Okay. And trying to outside forces trying to control mm. what we can and can't teach. Right. And um, when teachers are trying to introduce a more diverse um, perspective or catalog of books or right. something like that, I think that um, our administration has been fielding a lot of of complaints. Interesting. About that. Yeah. And um, just trying to to balance the the people who I, I would argue that we all need it um but totally. the, trying to totally. trying to balance yeah. the the families and students who recognize the need and yeah. those who don't recognize the need yet and yeah. really yep. trying to think about patience with people i mm. think patience has been the most important thing and what i try to share with other people who um, are in the community who are really interested in equity work is thinking about not everybody is in the same place in their journey. True. And so it's not a one, one fix for everybody. That's I can't right. just, right. you know, teach one way and just introduce one thing and expect everybody to, to just absorb it the way I want them to absorb it. So just acknowledging that everybody's in a different place in their journey and acknowledging that within some of the difficult conversations that we have, that people are going to, make mistakes and they're going to say things that they don't understand and right. using that as yep. an opportunity to, to educate and learn. Um, I think just reminding people to have a little bit more patience yeah. and that has definitely been a, a struggle because people, sure. I think anytime we highlight something or discuss the need to provide equity 
somebody sees it as taking away from their child or from their experience. Mm -hmm. And so it's, 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 it's difficult to try to explain that this isn't about taking away anything. It's about enriching and adding uh, to a student's experience and knowledge. Yeah. You know, and, and it's interesting because that is often the conversation um, as it, as it sort of plays out because what, what you find yourself doing is dealing with a lot of what aboutism, right. Where there isn't a recognition that there is an inequity. And I, you know, to your point that that's kind of how it shows up. There's, there's maybe an instinct to protect what is viewed as tradition or the way it's always been and that kind of thing. And, and I think also um, my experience with dealing with kind of addressing issues of equity, equity with white families often and, and colleagues, frankly, is that a lot of the folks that I'm addressing it with don't feel that they've received any privilege right? They, they feel very strongly that they worked extremely hard and that they weren't handed things. And oftentimes they're right. Oftentimes they are working people. Oftentimes they are people who weren't born into money. And that can be kind of sticky to deal with. Is that a little bit of, of what you also see? Or is it more discreet than that? I think it's, I think it's more discreet than that. Okay um here anyway um I think because we Aspen is like I said it's a place that that loves learning and and loves experience and so I think there is the perception that nothing negative could be happening here right right um so it's 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 different than, you know, well, I work hard too. I think it's more the idea that nothing negative could possibly exist in this perfect community. We try so hard. Yeah. We we really just want to learn everything. Yeah. 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 That's so interesting. (laughs) So, so it is kind of, so it's, it's that kind of uneasiness and, and more of just kind of bringing it to light for folks. Um, you mentioned in the yeah. earlier segment that um, that your father worked in law enforcement and that you've grown up in that. And, and, in, and in so many ways, uh, watching both of your parents, but your father too, um, address their work while still seeing the, the inequities and that kind of thing. I wonder how things like, you know, and this, and this is traumatic, right? As we watch these things happen, uh, you know, the trial of the of the officers that shot Breonna Taylor, um, the Derek Chauvin trial, like those kinds of things that have really been upsetting and stuff. How have you addressed that just from your personal experience, having grown up around law enforcement, um, having a person that you love very much and respect very much working in law enforcement? How has that dyna- dynamic played out for you, if I may ask? Um, you know, it's, I think that it gives me a uh, a different perspective for sure. When I look at something like, or someone like Chauvin, I look at it just like how minorities have been treated in the past. I'm not going to take one incident and paint the entire Mm -hmm. group that way. And that has been really important to me when I talk in civics class, when I talk to my own children, that there are going to be 
bad people that do bad things in any any group or category that we create as human beings. And we can't let those people dictate how we see the group as a whole. And I think that comes just from being a, a person of color and knowing what that feels like. Yeah. And knowing that my father was not a bad police officer, right. knowing that my father was somebody who cared and wanted to help people and wanted to protect people and yeah. knowing that there are more of my father out there than there are Derek Chauvin's out there. Yeah. And just trying to, to balance that while at the same time acknowledging reality and not allowing for people to get away with bad behavior. Right. And I think that that's the difference that we have seen over this summer is you have police officers calling out police behavior. Yeah. And that I think is a huge difference yeah. um, than incidents that have happened in the past. They've been kind of glossed over. Yeah, definitely. It's starting that, that sort of, um, you know, getting each other's back, like come hell or high water is it, it, it's cracking a little bit and you're starting to see that. That's a, that's a really interesting um, way to put it because at the end of the day, even if we agree that there's a systemic oppression that happens at every level that at the end of the day, um, systems are maintained by human beings or disrupted by human beings. And, um, and so when we recognize the humanity of, of the people who are actively working to disrupt uh, the sort of traditional expectations, I think that's a really powerful statement. Well, th- thanks for speaking to that. I think that's, that can be really tough. Um, you know, you know, especially if you spend any time on social media and seeing some of the comments that kind of go flying around and, uh, you know, so I appreciate you speaking to that. Um, so as we uh, draw to a close, um, got to talk about the elephant in the room. Um, that would be, um, as I understand it, there's been a pandemic. <laughs> um, I've heard. <laughs> um, you know, so there's probably a lot of similarities um, between, you know, across the board in terms of how COVID-19 has impacted uh, schools in general. What has been the impact of uh, COVID-19 on you and on your community that you serve? Um, I think there, you know, it's, it has definitely been devastating in the way that it has been in a lot of communities, just in terms of um, having to do online learning for a large part of the year, um, having to deal with social distancing and the mental health um, repercussions of those challenges. Yeah. Um, I think the inequity in terms of um, resources has become very apparent Um, and not just in terms of, you know, getting a computer. It's, it's more, when I think about equity, you can't just hand kids a computer and think that solved it. We got it. Like (laughs) everybody's experience is the same. Here's your hotspot. Here's your computer. Um, Looking forward to all the classwork you're going to run in. (laughs) And it's, yeah, it's so much more than that. And taking the time to understand students, understand their families, understand circumstances, um, and really trying to be, to be flexible um, as an educator, I think has been one of the greatest challenges for me because I'm not a very flexible person. I like schedule and I like routine and I like, yeah, I mean, well, that's, that's, that's what's um, considered to be like effective teaching is you're ready. You got yeah. a plan, you know, you anticipate everything. And that's what I've kind of felt, you know, I, I spent a lot of years as a distinguished teacher in our system and like this year, not being able to 
do most of what made me feel like I was a good teacher is extremely, extremely challenging. Have, are you all, um, have you been in person? Are you, um, are you still remote? How are you all uh, sort of navigating that piece? Um, we've moved through different phases. We were remote for the majority of first semester. Okay. And then we recognized that there were students that needed a place to be, mm-hmm. um, that working at home just was not happening. And so we started to phase in those students so that they had a, a place to be. And now we're at the point where we're welcoming back most students, mm-hmm. uh, but we are in a concurrent learning model, which poses equity challenges all over the place How does that um, work? in terms of <laughs> um, <laughs> depends on the teacher <laughs> like, you have. Good question. <laughs> really? Um, it's, I think that with social studies, I'm lucky that it, it, the subject kind of lends itself to being able to change and adapt yeah. really easily. <laughs> um, I think that if, if you have some, if you're an art teacher or a science teacher thinking about how to incorporate the handful of kids that are still remote while you have most of your kids in front of you right. is a very different challenge. Yeah. Um, oh, so when you say concurrent, it's some kids remote, some in person. That's what, yeah. that's what we're doing too. Yeah. yeah. And the majority of ours are still remote actually. Um, and just a few in person. And that's, I, I tell people that I feel like I'm uh, like doing a bad Ted talk on a bad YouTube channel. Like I just really feel like that's what's happening. <laughs> so it's wild. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, I mean, and you're absolutely right. You mentioned it at the beginning that you can't, you don't feel like the teacher you, you really are. You can't do the things that make you great. Yeah. And that's, that's been a challenge for students. And just thinking about students who struggle or students who, who need an extra challenge, my ability to address those needs have been seriously diminished um, given just the awkward format of remote learning or concurrent learning. Um, And so I think that has been really the most dramatic thing. I think also our populations have been hit differently. Mm. Um, The affluent parts of our population have access to different healthcare, have access to being able to, you know, stay home with their children. They have access to quite frankly be able to travel Mm -hmm. all over the place regardless of restrictions and then you have the working population who have to go to work they have to be in those essential jobs that put them at greater risk and we've seen greater loss in terms of family Mm. um, members in that in that group because of things that yes exactly well and and if i understand it correctly and do tell me if i if I misunderstand it, uh, there's a pretty significant service industry in, in Aspen. Am I right? So, yeah. so it would, I would imagine that, that that's, that's your, your frontline workers, that that's your, um, your essential workers who kind of keep things going. And interesting how that, that does play out across the system, whether you're in a small community or a larger community. Um, how do you sort of envision returning to quote unquote normal. And by normal, I just mean everybody going to school in person. <laughs> like, cause I feel like there's a lot of normal that I, yeah. that I feel like I personally could do without. Um, but how do you envision that happening? Uh, in, in my <laughs> mind, I'm thinking, Oh, you know, it's, it's going to be great. Everything's yeah. <laughs> just going to be like it was two years ago. Yeah. And I, what I 
am learning through COVID is that we really can't anticipate anything. Mm-mm. And so I'm not quite sure what to anticipate ex- beyond my own behaviors. I know that I am going to be excited to be in the classroom. I know students are going to be able to experience the passion that I have for learning and for social studies. And I am hopeful that students are able to be resilient in these times and take these lessons and use them to better understand the, the content that I happen to teach, because I think history and social studies is, is just, just a long story of resilience. That's right. That's a right. A long story of ups and downs. And well, it's a long story. A part of, of that. Yeah. And it's a story of, you know, um, you know, I have so much respect for especially history teachers who are able to contextualize what we're living through and encouraging students to bear witness. You know, it's kind of like, look, that you know, Anne Frank didn't know that anybody was ever going to see her diary and she was just writing in her diary because it helped her. And now we have an insider view of what it was like to be in hiding uh, during, during a difficult time. And I think, you know, students, you know, and I don't know if you've gotten this, I've had students say to me, yeah, but Munoz, I'm, I'm just tired of being a part of history. <laughs> like, I just want to not be historical for a while. And um, but I think that gets you down to this this notion of a of of what a people's history looks like, and it's just how people make sense of the of their surroundings. So, yeah, I feel like that last question wasn't super fair um, because it's like <laughs> it's like predict the future that nobody can predict <laughs> because it's um, a little challenging. Yeah. The exciting thing. <laughs> And, and the way that I, I hope to, you know, respond to any student who's saying I'm tired of being a part of history is, you know, at this point, especially now that we are, we're starting to turn a corner, they get to be a part of planning the future and thinking mm. about how we come oh, out yeah. of this. I love that. Um, I think is, you know, empowering them to think about, okay, how do you take this experience and make your family, your friends, your school, your community better as a result. No doubt. No doubt. Oh, that, I'm going to start using that. Like, it's like, all right, we, we got a new, we, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Now, what are we going to do once we're at the end of the tunnel? Um, and that's the future is ours to make. I love it. Well, Absolutely. Tamara Wilson, um, high school social studies teacher extraordinaire. We don't let you go in a minute, but we, I do have one extremely important question that I need to pose to you. And uh, knowing that this is an extremely, this is just critical uh, that we get this out here. Uh, I would love to know who your top five rappers are or performers. And we went over the rules in the break. So you, so you know what the rules are and that there are no rules. Um, what is your top five? My top five are incredibly diverse. They are all over the place. Awesome. Um, some living, some dead. Yep. Some rap, some not rap. Um, nice. Jay Z is an absolute. There on we my go. List. The weekend is an absolute on my list. Oh, look at you! Yes. Uh, <laughs> the paper kites okay. are on my list. Um, I wouldn't make it through my life without Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Yo. <laughs> I. I think that's Vivaldi's first appearance on our top five. That's beautiful. Beautiful. (laughs) I'm glad glad I could add that. Love it. (laughs) And uh, my personal favorite, and I don't think this can be left off any list, Wu-Tang Clan. Man, Um, man, Wu-Tang, absolutely. And Wu-Tang is, Wu-Tang is for the children, of course. Like this is, (laughs) this is necessary in an (laughs) educational uh, 
you know, sort of thing. Well, we do have, there's a group of us, uh, you know, teachers of color in, in Denver who call ourselves the teacher Wu-Tang Clan. So uh, we might, we might have to extend you an invitation. Um, I approve, that top five is dope. That top five is dope. Um, and I think it really speaks to the fact that you are many different things um, and that you are in a community where you are breaking your own path and you are addressing things courageously, fearlessly, um, knowing that your unique voice is absolutely valuable. So I think that top five is uh, is, is a perfect representation. We learn so much about each other through music. So, um, Well, uh, Tamara, thank you for joining me today on this conversation. Um, looking forward to hearing about what happens next and uh, really appreciate your insights for us today. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share my story and, and hopefully, you know, help someone else who's, who's thinking about getting into teaching and wants to make a difference. Definitely do it. Get into teaching if you're thinking about it. It's not easy, but it's amazing. <laughs> All right. Uh, talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A uh, really great interview and really amazing getting to know Tamara. Um, as kind of an aside, I want to let you know that if you know educators like Tamara Wilson, like others in the great state of Colorado who are doing amazing and meaningful work for kids in communities um, to make education accessible to everyone and liberating to everyone, consider nominating them for the 2022 Colorado Teacher of the Year. This has been an amazing opportunity for me to meet people, make connections, and just learn from folks who are just doing amazing things. Um, I'm about to head out of town here, and I'll have a chance to uh, meet up with the National Teacher of the Year for 2021, Juliana Ortube. Um, our families will be getting together in uh, Las Vegas, and it's going to be a really nice time to get to know another person who is just brilliant and who we all need to know a little bit better. The Habitually Disruptive Podcast is a production of Two Dope Productions. Feel free to check the other podcasts um, in that production scene, including um, the Two Dope Teachers and a Mic podcast with myself and Kevin Adams, the Exit Interview podcast with Asia Lyons and Kevin Adams, when they talk about ways in which black educators have been forced out of the teaching profession. The music, Why Wait, was composed by Ketza. It is royalty-free, and we like it, but it also jams real nice. And if you want to support Tudo Productions, head over to patreon.com slash Teachers. This is Gerardo Munoz, and I just invite you to stay disruptive.